Hey everybody, how are you doing? Uh, my name is Pastor Kevin. This is Pastor Daniel. Hi and guys. That guy over there is. Hi, I'm Pastor Omer. I can't ever do the reverse. Thing. <laughs> I know it's the reverse thing. Uh, we're coming to you live for a conversation on our next chapter in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter eleven. We have things like Beelzebub and demons and the sign of Jonah and Pharisees and lawyers. But Danielle has a problem. And before we get started, I have a you have a problem. You're a little, you have, you have a bone to pick with the scheduling of this teaching. We are wait, in wait, chapter wait. 11. First, let everybody know that they can comment on YouTube. Oh, I Please forgot that part. Submit your yeah. questions. Kevin, your, is your cell also available? But YouTube's great because then everyone can kind of chime on in. So get on the YouTube comments, even just to say hi, that we know that you're there. We see a lot of you saying hi just to one another. But we are live right now and we'd like to hang out and chat with you. Pretend that you're on our back porch, our deck, and that we've all pulled up a chair and we're opening up our Bible together and we're just going to sit and hang out and chat yes. and talk about the Bible. Fantastic. So we're in chapter 11 or so of the schedule, but you would like to do something different. Well, I was just like to say that I have noticed that we read chapter 10, read and discussed chapter 10 up through the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is lovely and great. But then in verse 38, we've decided to skip that and just start all the way in chapter 11. I'm just like, just, I don't know, are you trying to uphold the patriarchy and not talk about how we have a female disciple here sitting yeah, at the feet o of Jesus? Omer, what say you? Well, yeah, I mean, I would say even by framing it as Danielle's problem is problematic. Is it, is it not Thank our you. problem Thank you. That, that we do Thank this? You. And don't we Thank all you. suffer because, of, yes. because we hope yes. like this? Yes. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. Yay. Very good. Okay, so... I've been put in my place. Right. I think everybody really wants to know what's happening in Luke chapter 10, verse 38 and following. So should we read that real quick do and you have want, a little conversation? Do you want to do, do that? I mean... Yeah. Okay. Can we read and discuss? Because I would also be interested from the Sparkers who are all watching, have you thought about this passage before? What has been the... Even, you know, on a day like Mother's Day, has this passage been used to talk about how mothers should behave in the midst of all of this um, and how women should behave with Jesus? And so let's talk. What have you heard about Martha? What have you heard about Mary? Um, yeah. So should, let's go. Does that sound good? Great. Okay. This is yeah. the NRSV? Yes. All right. Let's read it from there. Um, so now as they went on their way, uh, he entered a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. She had a sister named Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to what he was saying. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks. So she came to him, Jesus, and asked, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and distracted by many things. There is need of only one thing. Mary has chosen the better part, which will not be taken away from her. So that's the end of chapter 10. And uh, let's discuss. What's, uh, so Omer, I'd be kind of curious because um, I know you, a little bit about your background and growing up, it's probably very similar. What is the traditional interpretation of this particular passage? Like what's the usual Mother's Day, women, here's what you're supposed to take away? Sure, I mean, I, I think they're, the, the traditional stories I've heard still try to, to push in what I think is a, it's a good direction, where it's to say that that um, what Martha is doing in this case, which is attending to housework, like a, a, a traditional way of framing it is that what she's doing is good, like it's right and it's not it's not wrong. In fact, 
it's like so she's that's not her sinning. responsibility. Right. Yes, right. That's right. It's it's her role, but it's that you know she has um she, her priorities are are uh, you know uh, out of line, and that that Mary is a, a contrast, somebody who has their priorities in order, and they're looking uh you know they're they're taking advantage of the fact that Jesus is there for them to learn. I think that like that ends up being often uh, as far as it goes, and usually I think the exhortation at the end of those sermons is like you know. like try to be more like a Mary and less like a Martha, but also, you know, remember what Martha is doing is great. And (laughs) it's important that like, you know, (laughs) consider being a Martha as your life aspiration. So that's the part where it gets like and problematic. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like distilled down to um, a personal moral discipline. Right. I've always heard it from the perspective of like, don't let the busyness of life crowd out your devotional time with Jesus. Yeah. You need your right. quiet so, time. Right. And right. Mary's clearly the exemplar of the quiet time with Jesus. Right. Just leave the dishes right. for a little while and go sit with Jesus and open up your Bible and hang out and do your quiet time because that is what's most important. And Jesus like is communicating that through his compliment of Mary. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of the most that I've ever been given in that right yeah so i i think sparkers are fairly uh, familiar if there's anybody who might happen to be new or visiting um one of the things that we attempt to do is call out uh and, and kind of commiserate i don't know if that's the right word with the, like common understandings of how these passages have been interpreted but then we ask some deeper questions which is is that really what that passage or that teaching or, or the, that those events in that particular passage would have been understood or interpreted in that particular way back then? And what say you, Pastor Danielle, from a historical or cultural <laughs> standpoint that might bring in a different light or a different perspective? Well, you know, it, there's a lot of things you can talk about in the verse, right? Like you can talk about hospitality. You can talk about the fact that Jesus is hanging out with people in a home, right? That Martha opens up that home, how first century discipleship worked, how itinerant ministries worked. But I think the thing that was never taught to me in any of those sermons about Martha and Mary was that Mary has actually, um, the phrase used for her sitting at the feet is actually a phrase used for discipleship. And I think that's the part that has always gotten overshadowed or not discussed very much is that here we have a phrase like to sit at the feet of a rabbi wasn't just mainly, I mean, she might not actually physically be sitting at Jesus's feet. I think that was always how I heard it was like sort of Jesus is here and you're just sitting at the feet and just so excited just to be at the feet. But the apostle Paul uses this phrase in the book of Acts to say, I sat at the feet of Rabbi Gamaliel. And it is a phrase that simply means like, that's the rabbi and I'm the disciple. And it's a phrase to indicate that you're in a sort of almost very official or some sort of construct of a teaching discipleship rabbi relationship here, um, where you're intending to learn for the sake of duplicating that information for others, right? The discipleship wasn't just about you doing it for you and your own quiet time devotion. In this type of sitting at the feet, when the Apostle Paul talks about it, he's like, hey, I learned from Gamaliel and that I sat at his feet. I was his disciple, which means I have that authority now to pass the teachings of Gamaliel along to the next person. And here we have a woman who is sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, Mary, maybe Martha's upset because Mary's not helping. 
but maybe there's also a frustration that maybe she's doing something that's not quite culturally expected. Like maybe she's like, hey, do you see what she's doing? She's sitting amongst the men and maybe we don't know. It doesn't indicate it's clearly Martha needs help. And it's not fun to just do all the work by yourself, right? Um, but Mary, there might be some additional cultural information here, right? Omer, do you have any? Yeah, comments? yeah. I think that that all makes a lot of sense, and I, I agree. The part that that is that's often left out is making that tight connection between uh, Mary being a learner in that context, and be, being a learner in that context means being uh, a teacher as well, being prepared to be a teacher, a disciple like Jesus's other disciples who, who went around sharing the good news and and were leaders. Um, and I, I would also add too that. Um, like and the the part that where the traditional stories kind of get it right is pointing out that there is an order of priority here and listening to Jesus and following Jesus takes priority over you know like other kinds of things right. especially things where you're like upholding your household structure and the the challenge though is i think that often we don't take that language far enough because I see that part of this story as consistent with a lot of other teachings in the gospel, uh, according to Luke, where Jesus is, he's like radically attacking the traditional family model and the way households are supposed yeah. to be set yeah. up. And he's like, Hey, look, I'm here. The kingdom is upon you. It's time to like get to work. And like, you can't be sitting around focusing on, Oh, but you know, like, but my, my family is what's really important. He says like very, extreme yeah. sounding things to people right. about their allegiance to their nuclear family. And I would put this as part of it where it's like, look, I'm sorry, you have to recognize what's more important in this case than just upholding our household structures. I, it's, it's terribly disruptive though. Uh, who's going to eat? Who's going to serve right. dinner? Who's like, so this is still got to get done in some ways. Yeah. I, oh, I think that's always been a little bit of a hard part of like, because I, if I were Martha, I'd be like, well, wouldn't it be nice? Like, wouldn't it be nice if we could all just sit at the feet of the rabbi and hang out all day? But everybody wants pita and somebody's going to need some hummus and we might, somebody's got to do the work. So I guess I'm doing the work by myself again, right? Like, I think there is that challenge where people got to eat. But obviously, something here must have taken hold for Martha because later on in other stories with Martha and Mary, she's the one to say... I know that if you were here, my brother wouldn't have died, but I believe right. you are the resurrection and the life. Like this is a crazy, amazing affirmation of who she knows Jesus to be. And I always just felt bad for Martha. Like, you know, like she's the oldest, I'm an oldest. Like she just was saddled with the responsibilities and had to do the thing. But later yeah. on, she's, she's not a nemesis, right? She is supporting Jesus's ministry out of her own means, upholding it through her own household, through her hospitality. And later on, she's developed also as a character. She just, the way we treat uh, Bible, people who appear in our Bibles are so just uh, easy. Like we'll like do that. It's like a caricature to, right. yeah, to make fun of them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree. I will add though, like Kevin, to your point that that's very hard to do. I mean, that is kind of how he talks in other places yeah. throughout the gospel. Remember he says like, you know, Hey, leave everything and follow me. And people's response is, uh, I got to bury my relatives right. first. And he's like, right. let the dead bury the dead. You come and follow me. 
right. like is that our right. attitude right. towards funeral their body's just gonna like right. hang out for the vultures awesome that surely somebody needs to to bury their relative and then later on in in our text today in luke 11 yeah. uh, a woman will say you know blessed are the the you know the right. the mother that who's at whose breast you right. you nurse and like and he's like yeah you know what's better than that people who do what i say so like it's like he's he's just going at it at that family structure and it's right. hard and it's like she was just trying to pay the man a compliment his mom a compliment and that's his reaction right right i mean i do feel like at that point you would i would feel so chagrined as that woman and I was just right. trying to be nice. Right, exactly. It is such a thing. It's not a thing. Fine, we know. Right. So so I said I was going to be a little bit provocative. I, I'm going to start with my first. I think it's provocative. I don't know. We'll see how it lands. But part, part of the tension that I feel here with, with us consistently <laughs> is that the teachings of Jesus are, I think, fairly clear, at least when you do this historical cultural study, that they're very disruptive in this particular sense. Um and at, it is that very reason, this revolutionary reason, like the dead bury their own dead, which is absolutely nonsense, right? It, that doesn't make any sense, right? So if that's really <laughs> the, the teachings of Jesus, then here's, here's my provocation. Then no wonder Christians need to kind of distill these teachings down to just simple, easy, moral principles and precepts. Because what do is... Do your devotion before right, you do Right, to do, do your devotion. Yeah. Because what's going on here is is in many ways nonsensical. And it, it does take a level of engagement, both personally, but especially communally. That's why I love our church so much. Communally, to try to understand what what is really going on here. Because if Mary did choose the better way, then Martha then follows, then nobody's cooking dinner, and the economics of the Jesus movement fall apart. And right. the same thing with the dead burying their own dead. So anyway, yeah. fix, man fix should that. Not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from <laughs> right. the mouth of God. And, and I, yeah, I get it, because 2,000 years later, we all literally have housework to do while <laughs> while we're following That's... Jesus. I think the way I've always seen it as it is, it is a matter of where, like, to what end are you doing anything? And I think that what Jesus mm, is pushing yeah. back against is is often housework. Like it is in the service of you caring for your own family. And that is the epitome of what it means to like be a human being is you you look out for your own kind and you take care of you take care of yourself and the and those you love. And Jesus is constantly, especially in this text, this stretch of passages we're in, constantly pushing us to think outside of ourselves and imagine God's family to be bigger than it is. And no, you don't exist on this earth for the sole purpose of taking care of your own kids and your own household. Like that's not what this is about. Okay. But can I just say too, that I think we, sorry, I didn't mean to cut No, 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 take it. Uh, I'm going to poke the bear a little bit more. We read so much into these stories too, right? Because I can point to like 45 other passages that talk about the value of hospitality. And how you should always make sure to feed somebody when they show up. And you should always make sure to be able to be a good host or hostess. And we can, like, do this all the way back to Genesis. And burying dead people. Right. We're supposed to do that, right? So there's all... Unfortunately, very relevant. Right. I I just wonder if sometimes, like, we don't get to have some conversation with Luke someday and Jesus and be like, so what was that about? What was Mary? And they're like, listen, it was specific to her. <laughs> like They were having a conflict or Mary was just like over, it was like a Martha yeah. Stewart day and we just needed a basic thing or like, or she was lording or she was just really angry that a woman was out of place. 
and she was taking the the place of a disciple. So we don't know all these other things behind it. And if we take too much and imbue too much meaning into any single one story or hold it up over others, then we can quickly find ourselves not doing housework or not being a good host or suggesting that, you know, Mary's just sitting there and having this really beautiful moment rather than the power that's behind it is that there's a, maybe Luke's including this just so that we know that there were female followers yeah. of Jesus. Yeah. The, the point that, disturbs me and, and the thing that I would like to push on a little bit is like I'm like I'm on board with the interpretation of these passages in the way that we've just laid them out but um, Omer specifically the thing that you said about you know these passages in this movement of Jesus and these teachings are really uh, invoking the idea that we are to get outside of our own expectations the way that we think about things the even the things that we think we're supposed to get out of this passage <laughs> okay here's my provocation the vast majority of the people that go to church or are Christians do, it, that's the very agenda. It's like I go to church to get my worship, to get my teaching, to get that which is going to spiritually feed me. And you build a church essentially upon that very premise. And this is especially relevant for you, my friend, being a consumer psychologist and a pastor at a church where it feels like those two things um at least intersect or overlap or ha at least inform one another in some particular way. Hmm. So I'm kind of curious because I, this is the thing that for me, I think I'm really compelled by how re revolutionary this is that early Christians really did do that. They got out of their cultural skin. They were able to imagine a completely revolutionary way of constructing how humans are supposed to relate to one another by what values they live. I mean, this is, I, I find that historically compelling and yet at the same time, I feel like there's this de-evolution or devolving into, um, oh, Adel, that whole conversation that we had however many years ago about the free market of religion, where I get to now just pick and choose whatever religion I want. And passages like this as well. I mean, like the, the entire gospel, according to Luke, hits us in the face with, this is not about you. Back to Rick Warren. Right. <laughs> Right. Well, it's it's funny that you ca you called it a de-evolution because I think um, for wordplay you could actually I, I think there are pop psychology and pop evolutionary psychology understandings of like really this is what you would expect as the outcome of humanity mm -hmm. is over time you will look out for yourself and your the propagation right. of your own genes. I see Jesus. And the, like the whole church as like the radical reorientation of what family means mm -hmm. as a slap in the face to all of that. And and fine, like let's say humans are, are intrinsically motivated to do that, to look look out after ourselves because, because survival, uh, just because that's how we intrinsically are or the way that that's, or the, that that's the way the world is set up doesn't mean that that's how it ought to be. And, yeah. and I think that's what Jesus is pushing against. Even in, Kevin, like you're saying, what we get out of church, I think I think you're right. We bring we bring those kinds of nuclear minds, nu nuclear family attitudes towards church as well, and we shouldn't. Hmm. Well, I I guess for those of you watching, I, maybe before Spark, had you ever even heard that this was as disruptive as it is, or had you only heard it preached? in that way is it shocking to hear that this is discipleship language used for mary and, and how disrupting that is to that that system or those social expectations for the time right so or has it always just been taught about like 
make sure you do your devotional time first in the morning before you wash your dishes or for So I, it would be interesting, like if you guys want to chime on in for those kinds of conversations there. Um, and then we can probably move to yeah, the I would portion. I would agree because I, I feel I feel like this is a continual theme mm-hmm. for us in our ministry and for especially we know that we've had some amazing people just find us even through pandemic. You know, there's some sparkers who are now with us uh, who have been with us for less than six months or so, you know, um, just a, a continual reminder that these passages are huge challenges to our personal and cultural expectations. And when we see what Jesus is doing here, it opens up huge, amazing possibilities for um, for women, for people who have been disenfranchised or left by the wayside and ostracized by yeah. society, and for us to actually re-examine the, even the cultural categories by which we live, um, which in many ways brings us to this next segment, like Beelzebub and the sign of Jonah and, and stuff like that. So why don't we, um, why don't we explain a little bit or, or talk through Beelzebub? Which is... So we just note for people with their Bibles open, we're skipping over a big chunk. Um, so Jesus is going to teach the what we call the Lord's Prayer here or the Disciples' Prayer, the Our Father. And then um, he's going to talk a little bit about prayer and persistence in prayer. We've talked about that in some other Spark sermons as well. So we want to um, make sure that if you have any questions about that, um, definitely you can throw those in as well and we can talk about it, but then we can also go to verse 14. I just, I think there's one moment when you, when you read through that portion and I don't know, um, Omer, if you want to chime in on this too, but when you just read about prayer, it can sound like, well, if I ever really, really, really need something from Jesus. I will just ask constantly and persistently over and over and over again. And then ultimately he will give it to me. And if I have not been given it, it's because I didn't ask enough or wasn't persistent enough or wasn't faithful enough because we we hear kind of this portion of the conversation. Um, but overwhelmingly, I think in this little short section that's going to connect up to Beelzebub, Jesus is simply talking about what kind of relationship we can have with the God of all creation when we pray and what what the character is of God our Father, that God right. cares desperately about us, that we are permitted to ask over and over again, even if the answer is a yes, but not yet, or not on this side of heaven. God is not angry with us for asking again. God does not give us a snake when we ask for an egg. God's not give, like all of the, God is not going to treat us poorly. We don't have to yeah. worry about those things. And I think a lot of times when, just pastoring the last 20 plus years or whatever, I hear people talk about God as though I must have made God mad because I didn't do it this way and that way. No, here Jesus is really working hard to make sure that we know what kind of father we have. And that, that's yeah, I, 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 I would agree with that. And I would say the way that it ties into this next story, which, which we'll discuss in particular, is, is it hinges on the idea that God is good. God does good things and God wants good things to happen. And if you're ever interpreting what you're seeing, in conflict with that, there's something fundamentally off with your moral compass. That's like, that's going to be part of the, right, the story. Right, as well. right. That's right. I think that's important. Um, yeah. So let's get to verse 14. And Omer, do you want to read yeah. us into this part? Yeah, let's do it. I can, I can set it up for us. So, awesome. so it says, Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had as been mute do. spoke. <laughs> yes. And the, and the crowd was amazed. 
But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and a household divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. So he goes on to make, uh, you know, a, a couple, like flesh that out more. The the thing that, but, that but I wanted to- Can you do one yeah, last, can you do so, the rest? Uh, verse 23. Up to so 20, whoever, is not, yeah. whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When, uh, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. You know, typical demon behavior. Yeah. They're so predictable right. like that. Uh, like as teenagers. Jesus was saying... That's right. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, blessed is the mother who gave birth and nursed you. He replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. What I wanted to call out right now was that, um, and especially it ties into what we were just talking about, about the, like the fundamental nature of who God is and what God does is so like nobody reading this should forget the top line, which is that a man who couldn't speak became able to speak. So Jesus right. literally gave nice. voice to a voiceless person. One would think for that audience in particular, the only appropriate response would be praise God. Think You'd think they're prepared to do that. But instead, the reaction that they give is, you must be doing this in the name of demonic leaders. That's like, by, you're doing this by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And then there, uh, a, a different group of people will say, they asked for a sign. That's what they wanted, uh, as opposed right. to what, what they just What just happened. Witnessed. So that's the, the, the tragedy. And I think that the warning in, in this scenario is very much that the, Jesus's opponents in, in this story have become so invested in protecting their status quo, themselves, whoever it is that they look out for, that when they see a good thing being done, they, their, their, their moral understanding of what's happening is so off that they, they oppose Jesus so much that they can't help but attribute demonic activity to what's going on. And that, that is, that's especially devastating in this case that like, and Jesus' response yeah. is like, like, this doesn't make any sense. And then he goes, he does this logical, you know, breakdown of, of why that right. kind of reaction wouldn't make sense. Can, can I just say this just came to me now. It's nowhere in my notes, but that sounds so much like the fundamental attribution error, the correspondence bias. <laughs> like when something bad happens over there or, or something good happens out over there, it clearly wasn't because of the person, but of some right. sort of right. other circumstance. Right. But when I do something good, it was because of my character, because I'm a good my person. quality, because right. I'm a good right. person. Right. So that, that for those of you who have, may have heard that phrase, fundamental attribution error, it's also known as correspondence bias, uh, attributing the factors to personality or personhood when it's you and it's good, but attributing the factors to environmental or non-personal things when it's somebody else when it's good. 
Yeah. I don't know. Am I onto something? No, I mean, you're, no, no, no. you're the social I, I psychologist here. Yeah, they're they're absolutely doing that. And I, I think that the tragedy is that, I mean, it's particularly sad in this case because of the beautiful thing that, that Jesus is doing. That like that that, you know, like the hope is that when any of us witness something like that, our the appropriate response would be gratitude. Like, wow, that's right. amazing. And instead, it is um, it, it's hatred, it's animosity because they are threatened by Jesus. That's what's driving their their behaviors. Yeah, and actually, let me bring up George uh, just to make sure that we're uh, paying attention. I don't understand the jokes about demons and deliverance. What am I missing? And I think you're alluding to that. the The whole idea, at least for modern readers, is the miracle should be the thing uh, that we pay attention. But instead of paying attention to the miracle or at least praising God for the good thing that has happened, there is this distraction with, well, he is clearly threatening our religious position. He's clearly threatening the way things are supposed to work according to the way we understand how the world. So you must be doing it from some sort of demonic activity, some sort of evil, right? Is that a fair yeah. assessment? Yeah. Go ahead, Danielle. Also, I'm not sure I understand the question, um, the jokes about demons and deliverance. So I think I might be missing something. So, Jor, I, I apologize if I'm not understanding entirely what you're saying. I think part of it is that, I mean, to, to me, it does seem kind of comical, Jesus's description of like, you know how when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes to arid places seeking rest. Like all, he's like, he's uh, he's talking about demons in a way that clearly makes sense to his audience. And it's just like looking back uh, at it from our modern vantage point. It's like, it's that that's part, that's the part that kind of seems uh, a little comical. But the, oh, the point see. of the story is like you know what what you know what we shouldn't lose is the the very simple logic of what Jesus is putting forward which is that that uh, you know why why would why would satan or beelzebul however you want to construct that why would a leader of demons be dispatching demons to do good things in other words to work right. against itself right. That doesn't that doesn't make any sense. And right. then he goes on to, right. to expand it in a few different ways, um, which, you know, which is exactly right. And it underscores the fact, again, like yeah. like like really, this is what it's come to. You you see good, beautiful things in front of right. you and you just say that they're bad and that, miraculous the, the, things. And I think that was my joke. Right. Now, I, I think I understand what you're saying, Joel. Like when when Omer started to read like Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. I think that's like I said, as you do, because that's. It's they write it here like it's a normal everyday activity. It's not a normal everyday activity. It's something that like that's incredible. And the man who's been mute speaks and the crowd's amazed like this is not normal. So they the the thing that strikes me is that they are just like as Luke's talking about this, like and so then Jesus is walking. Right. And this he just drives out a demon. And that's I'm like, as you do, because that's not something I get to do on a daily basis. And I think the reason why the crowd is also struggling with it is because it's obviously something they're not doing on a daily basis, because if they were, then they'd be like, oh, yeah, he, you just pray. And then that happens. Right. Because um, why wouldn't everybody be praying that prayer? Something amazing and miraculous is happening. Jesus is not like everybody else. Something incredible is happening in this moment and somebody's being set free because this isn't something at least that most people I know of are 
um, imbued with that spiritual gift to do, Jesus is God. And this is going to be another moment that sort of demonstrates that sign that people are looking for. But instead, as Omer, you pointed out so well, they decide to attribute this power that Jesus has to evil rather than to good, even though it is good that's being accomplished. And I think it's scary when you see that kind of power. It can be frightening. You're trying to understand it and you don't. So then Jesus continues to explain. One of the things that happens here in this next passage is just the accusation of Beelzebub, right? In 15, who is that? And Omer, you have some information on who that is because we don't, that's not a common term that we're using today. Right. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, for, for those of you um, who might need a little context, that this name uh, is appears for the first time or like in, in this form in the New Testament here, but it's evoking language from the Old Testament that like in Second Kings that is associated with the, the Philistine God connected to the Canaanite God Baal. But by the time we get to Jesus's day, a lot of Jews in those circles use that, that name pejoratively to mean like Lord of Dung and that like however they conceived of Satan or like the the leaders of demonic activity that like they're associating this name or this figure with that it's amazing how much uh how much biblical history is like constantly throwing shade at all of these little right that's right <laughs> well as we've gods. talked about before like in the book of ezekiel over and over again multiple times dozens of times ezekiel refers to idols the word we translate it as idols but the actual word in hebrew is gelulim which is dung balls it <laughs> is it's so great <laughs> it's right i mean it, and it comes from also the beetle the dung beetle that you can see on the scarabs out of egypt that was worshipped as a god for the rising of the sun and the setting it down because it makes it's it's a whole thing and i talked about it for a while and i think it's fascinating but that could be part of that too it's also sometimes uh, translated here as like the lord of the flies because the flies are always around the dung and um well that's an etymological uh right definition right. the word baal is the the ancient canaanite slash hebrew word for lord and you'll actually see two words in your Bible, uh, Baal, Ze Baal, or Baal-Zebul. Mm -hmm. And that ends with Baal, if you listen carefully, it ends with the at that L sound, which is Lord of Lords. But the pejorative, which is translated Lord of Dung, is Baal-Zevuv. Mm -hmm. And the word Zvuv in Hebrew is the word for fly. So you'll see that in both. And when you see that, you're... you're catching the hebrews the ancient israelites throwing shade it's not he's not lord of lords he's lord of the flies beelzevuv right yeah. and and then jesus after this little portion if we look to verse 20 says but if i drive out demons by the finger of god then the kingdom of god has come to you and Dunball's so hilarious. i know dung balls are <laughs> hilarious so in why is yeah. Jesus talking about the kingdom of uh, the finger of God? Kevin has preached a message some time ago at Spark called God gave Pharaoh the finger. <laughs> I don't um, think I actually got to give that message. Oh, oh. And I were trying to figure out. I don't I think I've given the message. No? When God gave Pharaoh the finger is the okay. title missed, of the message. Missed opportunity. Yeah. Right. Maybe, maybe it is maybe. in the archives. I can't well, remember. In any event, um, this phrase, finger of God, comes all the way back from Exodus chapter 8, beginning in verse 19, where then in that sort of showdown between Moses and Pharaoh and all of the plagues, the plague of gnats or, and kind of right in with the plague of flies, right? They are able to duplicate 
um, the plague, but not solve the plague, if you remind, remember uh, Pharaoh's Egyptians. And so they say um, they can produce the, the gnats by their secret arts, but they can't take them away. So um, actually, it's, I think I'm saying, but when the magicians tried to produce the gnats by their secret arts, they could not. And the gnats were on the men and the animals. And the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen. So it became a phrase to talk about sort of something that God has done that nobody else could do. And even the magicians who are not believers in God recognize that this is the power of God. So Jesus grabs hold of that, maybe with a bit of a connection back to the Lord of the Flies as well because of that gnat incident and pulls that in. Like if I'm doing this by the finger of God, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Yeah. So it's a different, another hearkening back to those powers. Well, it's a consistent theme in mm -hmm. Jesus's ministry where the stories that these ancient Israelites, first century Hebrews, yeah. first century Israelites would have known and understood like, oh yeah, clearly God did that during the Exodus. Right. So when Jesus does the same thing and uses the same phraseology and makes the same allusions, it's like that, that same God that brought that liberation then yeah. to with that particular king, Pharaoh, is now happening once again. And fascinating in this particular story, in the Exodus story, who's the, you know, the evil person, the person that's being the oppressor is Pharaoh the king, clearly a foreign uh, despot. In the Luke passage, who who are the people that are holding on to the oppression who's who's right. the pharaoh it's the religious leaders and that that right. that to me is just constantly shocking and amazing um and i i things that things that i love and that hard heart of pharaoh that doesn't allow him to see the movement of god right is right. also that right. Sort of echo, exactly right where the where the crowd isn't seeing the movement of god and that next verse jesus gives in in verse 21 right when a strong man fully armed guards his own house his possessions are safe pharaoh is fine for a long time but when someone's stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the arm in which the man trusted and divides up the spoils, right? Like as Israel left, they took the spoils of the Egyptians with them and a lot of Egyptians went with them too. I think when uh, we talk about the Exodus story, you have to remember that one of the symbols or, or images used is that God pulled Israel out of Egypt with a strong arm, with an outstretched arm, a strong arm. And here in the Exodus story as well here, we can see that if God just extends God's little finger, for the metaphor, still something incredibly powerful happens. Like, so there's a, a bit of that imagery there too, I yeah. think is really amazing. Uh, there's two things I'd like to make sure we uh, get to. Marcus, uh, Pastor Marcus, we would call some of Jesus's critics haters and the haters are gonna, I think, what, hate? I think that's how hate, it goes. Yeah. Hate, hate? Yeah. yeah. I just I wanna believe, make sure I got that. I believe that is, that is what uh, Taylor Swift, <laughs> Pastor Swift teaches, that's correct. Uh, and then, Bob and Shelley have this really, I think, important uh, comment for us to try to tackle. Mm. Churches have often taught this Beelzebul passage that Satan is the Lord and master of this world. And Jesus is our military leader taking the world back from Satan's kingdom. Mm. What say you too about the uh, that particular traditional interpretation of this particular passage? And, and what kind of nuances would we bring to that? Do you want to go jump ahead, in first, yeah. Omer? No, okay. You can go so, ahead. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I want to address this specific question, but I want to talk about something within it. And then, Omer, if you have anything else sure. about the question specifically. I just want to say that Christians often have a tendency to talk about Satan and demons um, as though, like Satan, right, the accuser, as though it's an equal counterpart to the power of God. And... 
we often will talk about even instances like this or demonic oppression or illness or all those kinds of things as though that's a power we're contending with and we're not quite sure we're going to win the battle, right? And I just like to say that that is not how the Bible treats Satan, the accuser, or any of the people that are on Satan's team. Um, when I teach garden to garden and we go through the whole Bible from cover to cover, one of the things that people come away with, particularly after completing the Hebrew scriptures, is they'll say something like, where is Satan discussed in the Hebrew scriptures? And I will say, aha, yes, he is not actually discussed very much. There are a couple moments where maybe there's a bit of an allusion in Ezekiel. Um, and we have definitely a discussion about Satan, the accuser in the book of Job, which is a fuller discussion. But there's not a lot of demonology or study of Satan in our Bible in our, particularly in the Hebrew portion of our Bible and the Old Testament, in the New Testament, Jesus kind of talks about it more than anybody else. I mean, it's talked about a lot, but we still don't have a lot of origin story or backstory. There's a lot of things that were developed later in church history, but are not actually part of our text. I think the reason why we don't have a lot of information about this is because we are not reading a story to tell us about Satan or demons. We're reading a story that tells us about Jesus. We're reading a story that tells us about how God is at work in this world. And so if we try to grab hold of too much in whatever, think like this is what Satan's doing today, or I'll hear sometimes Christians say like, wow, you know, Satan was really after me today. And I kind of want to go, no, he wasn't. You're a small fry. Like there, Satan isn't everywhere. He's not omnipresent. He's not omniscient. Um, there is, our theology dictates that God is in charge of everything and that God has permitted, and we can all wrestle and argue with God about this, permitted for some time Satan and evil to be present in our world and to be at work and to be busy. Um, but the end of Romans chapter 16, 19, and 20 says, be excellent at what is good, be innocent of evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So please, everybody, look tall. at your feet. Your feet are very small. This is not a battle that we need to worry about losing. That's not, I'm not trying to diminish um, any theology that anybody might have regarding demonic oppression or influence, but I just want to let you know, as children of God, you're okay, right? Jesus has got this. And I think that this passage is talking a lot about authority. Demonology 101, Pastor Daniel. Yeah, I, I, um, I think a lot of that makes sense, and, and I, I would agree with. The part that I want to affirm in in the comment that, yes. that we're discussing is that I mean the New Testament writers do use language sometimes that describe you can call it Satan or like demonic activity or evil as having some kind of foothold over the world the way that sure. it exists right now in a way that feels like it is winning mm -hmm. right like it, I think the Bible acknowledges that even by some yes. descriptions sometimes like calling um, you know evil or Satan like the ruler of this present age or something yeah. like that the part I like Danielle I agree completely when that is brought up it is to underscore the fact that Jesus in dot living dying coming back from the dead and ascending to the throne uh, has dealt a, a crushing blow 
to right. those evil forces in which a reversal has occurred. And now those evil forces are on the ropes as opposed to how it would have, how the story would have been right. before Jesus. And that in a meaningful way, the, those evil systems, their days are numbered, they're about to be conquered. And in that sense, I would affirm that there is, I'm, I would, my read of, of that, that world is that there is a war, there is a battle going on. Sure. Absolutely, we know that that Jesus is winning. I, I mean, I also think that it, I, I, I would not, um, knock somebody for thinking that they are fighting that battle on an individual level and a collective or, or system-wide level. I think I think that that's, that's also true. And I would affirm for anybody who feels like, uh, like Satan is on their back or Satan is on the government's back, like from individual me to the entire systems of the world, that, that though that may feel true and even be true to some extent, there is no question that Jesus is on your side that Jesus right. is winning and right. that it is, it's a matter of our, our collective living out of Jesus's calling in a matter of time in which right. that those kinds of battles will not be battles anymore. Yeah. It's not like star Wars basically is all right. right? We right. don't, we don't have to, there are battles. There is a struggle against powers and principalities. And we can have really interesting conversation about what all of those are. But you remember just back in Luke 10, where we discussed last week with Tom, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven, Jesus says, right? right. But as right. the disciples go and build this kingdom and not just push out the demons, but fill it back up with the presence of God, right? You just not leaving empty houses everywhere, but filling it up with the pursuit in the kingdom of heaven. Things are changing. Things are shifting. People are getting healed. I mean, miracles are happening, and this is incredible. Bob, I, uh, Bob and Charlie, I see the other comment that you have. I'll just throw it up there, but we are running uh, out of time, so we want to make sure that we honor your uh, comment there. Uh, the challenge I've had is in discussions with some Christians about advocacy mm. for justice and the common good. They use this worldview to say that secular governments and politics are Satan's dominion. So that's uh, obviously a huge um a huge big piece. Uh, Golden Heart uh, mentions that uh, Satan itself is a title, not a right. name. Hasatan, that is correct. Right. Uh, it actually comes with the the, the article, the, right. uh, the Satan. The writers didn't even give him pride of place. And then a uh, last right. comment that Helen uh, just uh, brought in. I like that Satan is in no way equal in power to God. Right. Yeah. Okay, friends, it is uh, it is time for us to bring this segment of our service to a close to honor everybody's time. You guys were amazing today yeah. in all of your comments uh, and just sharing and this kind of communal engagement with our faith and with our text and uh, with the history, tradition and teachings of Jesus is absolutely wonderful and beautiful. Thank you so much for participating and contributing to the service. Seriously, seriously awesome. Pastor Omer, as always, conversing with you is a delight and a joy and uh, a great provocation to my life. So thank you so much. And of course, the lovely Pastor Danielle for uh, all of her insights and wisdom and erudition. So <laughs> um, thank you, everybody. I, we're going to uh, shift to communion. We hope that you have your communion elements available and we're going to let the slides lead us and stick around. Uh, at the end, I have some announcements for all of you, some very exciting events coming up there we're announcing in two weeks, as well as other things that are going around uh, the life of our church. So thanks again. Thank you, everyone. Let's have communion thanks, together, and we thank will you. close our service out.